The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. My name is James Class. Um, I was on staff uh, here at Maranatha a number of years ago. Really, Maranatha was my home for the better part of 10 years, and uh, I've since been to a couple different places. Right now, I'm down at a church. Calvary Chapel Santee is where I'm at right now, but so blessed and thankful to be here with you tonight. So thankful for this church for Ray and Daniel and Sean, uh, just so thankful for them and their families and uh, what they mean to me, what they mean to you, I'm sure, as well, as just can't, can't really, really be measured. And all of the time I spent in youth ministry here at the church working with Jared and Danny and Doug and Jimmy, and so it's just a real blessing for me to be able to be here with you tonight. I heard when Daniel realized that he was going to be gone this week that he started thinking about who he would get to fill in, and he kind of did his homework and made sure that he would get the best possible replacement that he could come up with, just a phenomenal Bible teacher. And as it turns out, that guy couldn't be here, but I'm, I'm glad uh, that eventually he made his way down on the list to me and gave me a call. Thankful to be with you here tonight. Why don't we pray and we'll get into the Word of God together. Heavenly Father, we do just come before you. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for this place where we can meet and gather and worship you. And we just pray that as we get into your word, that you would speak to us, that our hearts and our minds would just be open and ready to hear, ready to receive, ready to respond in the way that you would have us. We love you, Lord, and praise you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if you want to open up your Bibles there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as you're making your way there, I appreciate the fact that none of you darted for the door while my eyes were closed, praying, you know, realizing, wait a minute, who's this guy? So you're going to see things out. That's wonderful. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I don't know how familiar you are with this portion of Scripture or with the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, but this is a church that he planted, and in the first few verses of the chapter, after he gives a little bit of an introduction, he he begins describing the Christian life and some of the trials that we can face, some of the challenges that we go through. And as difficult as they are, that God is able to deliver us, God is able to see us through. He refers to him as the God of all comfort. I like that. I like how right in the midst of our trial, right in the midst of our tragedy, God can draw us near to himself and give us the power, give us the comfort, give us the hope that we need even in the face of very difficult circumstances. And one of the things that he establishes very quickly in this passage that we're going to look at tonight is that he was speaking from a place of firsthand experience. In other words, he wasn't talking about something that he didn't know anything about, and that adds some weight to the things that he's sharing with us. I don't know if you've ever been right in the middle of a very serious trial or tragedy, and you get some people who come along, and maybe they're well-meaning, maybe they're well-intentioned, but it's kind of noise from the peanut gallery, and they haven't really experienced the kind of trial that you're going through. Isn't it so easy to them? They look at you and say, what's the big deal? Why don't you pray about it? Have you thought about praying about it? That's what I would do in a situation like that. I don't see what's so complicated. I don't see what you're struggling with. Easy for you to say, you've never been in my shoes. 
You've never experienced what I'm going through. And so the Apostle Paul makes it quite clear early on, no, I've been there. I've experienced more than my fair share of trial and tragedy and hardship. And I'm here to tell you that God is good, that God is faithful, that he can see you through. But as a matter of fact, we're going to read in our passage, the Apostle Paul said there were point in times in his ministry where he was burdened beyond measure, where he was completely overwhelmed, where he despaired even of life. And here he is, the mighty Apostle Paul that we look up to, this hero of the faith. But he struggled with some fear, with some anxiety, with some depression. He could get discouraged at times. And he wrestled through some of these things, going through very difficult circumstances. And of course, that has been one of the more unfortunate side effects of this last season that we've been in with COVID and the lockdowns and everything else, that we know that mental illness has been on the rise. We know there's been a rise in anxiety and depression and suicide. One study in particular suggests that depression is three times greater than it would normally be right now as a result of this pandemic. I would imagine a lot of that has to do with isolation, a lot of that has to do with hopelessness and fear, looking at their circumstances, wondering how could this possibly work out? How are we gonna be okay? And so we know depression is on the rise and that's something that the world acknowledges. They realize that it's an issue, but of course they just look at it from the standpoint of, well, what about medicine? What about doctors? What about counseling? What about self-help, self-motivation? What about healthy diet and exercise? And all of those things are fine. I'm not discounting those things, but that's their perspective on it. And of course, that's the positive perspective, isn't it? There is the more negative reaction that the world has. How about drugs? How about alcohol? How about indulging in some sinful lifestyle and make all of my problems go away? But of course, It just adds, it just complicates, it multiplies problems and depression and hopelessness. But even in some of the more positive responses that the world has to the depression and the anxiety and the fear that we can go through, it falls incredibly short because it's not really dealing with the root problem. And the root issue is we have been created to know God to be in a relationship with God. We've been created to have a living, breathing relationship with Jesus. Amen? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the true vine. I am the life giver. How futile it is to think that we could find life, meaning, and significance apart from him. And the really amazing thing is God knows all of this. He knows all of our weaknesses. He knows all of our fears. He knows all of our sin. He knows all of our struggle. And instead of having this judgmental attitude of, well, then get out of here then. Instead, he invites us into his presence and he says, give those things over to me. I want to meet you right where you're at. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Tonight, I'll start reading here at verse 8. I'll just read down to verse 10. It's only a couple of verses, and then we'll back up and look at a few things. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. 
Yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Now, let me just say, as we're starting out in our time in the word together, that if you have ever struggled with anxiety, fear, depression, I just want you to know that you're in good company. Not only are you in good company, most likely with many of the people in this room, you're in good company with the people that we find in the pages of Scripture. Sometimes this hyper-spiritual, hyper-Christian attitude comes out and we say, well, real Christians don't struggle with these kinds of things. I don't really know what that's all about. To me, people who don't have any struggles, people who don't have any fear, people who have never wrestled through some of these issues to one degree or another, that sounds a lot more like faking it than real Christianity. And so you're in good company. I think of people like the prophet Joel. The prophet Joel who cried out to a nation and said, God, would you restore the years that the locusts have eaten in my life? But he, he understands that God is the one who can bring redemption. God is the one who can bring salvation. I think of somebody like the prophet Elijah. Elijah, who on Mount Carmel, he called down fire from heaven. And the showdown with the prophets of Baal. And he slaughters these prophets of Baal and he leads the nation into repentance. But then he hears about one person, Jezebel, is angry, is looking for me, wants to kill you. And he goes running. He panics. He's totally afraid. He takes off into the wilderness and he starts saying things like, God, I'm the only one. I'm the only one serving you. I'm the only one left. Now, would you just take my life? He came to a place of hopelessness. He came to a place of despair, just giving up and crying out to God. I think we just need to end this whole thing right now. Now, fortunately, God was gracious with him. He was merciful. He ministered to him and he corrected him on a few things. And he says, Elijah, you know, you're not the only one. I actually have 7,000 that haven't bowed their knees to Baal. And so you're being a little dramatic here. I've found that the world, the flesh, and the devil will always exaggerate our problems. But Elijah came to a place of hopelessness. I think of the prophet Jonah, that reluctant prophet. God calls him to go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, only Jonah doesn't want to do it. Jonah is afraid that God is going to be merciful to Nineveh, the Assyrians, their sworn enemies. Even though it was just a message of judgment, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to fall, but he didn't want to go there because he knows, oh God, you're so good and you're slow to anger, you're so merciful, you're probably going to forgive them, aren't you? Like that would be such a horrible thing. He's the only evangelist I know that would be worried about people responding to his message. And so he goes, oh, I don't want to go there, God, because if you're sending me there, that must mean you're going to give them an opportunity to repent. And I think there's a word there for us. If we're hearing a message, even if it's convicting, even if it makes us feel a little guilty, if we're hearing the message, that must mean there's still time to repent. That was something that Jonah understood. And so he did something very foolish. He ran from God. I don't know how many of us would be willing to admit if you've ever run from the Lord, but isn't it exhausting? trying to run from God, whether you're running from him in terms of salvation, running into sin, running into rebellion, 
or maybe just running from some calling that God has on your life, some plan that he has for you. But whenever you're running from God, so exhausting. Because the truth of the matter is, it's really foolish. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all time. You can't run away from him. But it's also exhausting in the sense that God will start to run after you. That's really the amazing lesson that you learn there from that book of Jonah. As he ran from God, God begins to run after him and he'll run after you and me as well. You know, I think of my dad. When I was growing up, I have two older brothers and the three of us, we could be a little bit wild, a little bit rebellious at times. And, and so all the time we'd be in trouble and we would sneak out at night. You know, if we were grounded or something and we'd slip out the back door or we would maybe slip out the bathroom window, which you know this was a story from a long time ago where I was able to fit through a bathroom window, but I'd sneak out the bathroom window and I'd go out with my friends and think to myself, oh, that's it. We got out scot-free. I don't have to deal with any of this until tomorrow, but my dad would chase after us. He'd come looking for us. It would be inevitable. We would be out somewhere far away, and here's my dad pulling up in a car. Here's my dad riding up on a bike. We could be in the middle of a storm drain somewhere, and there he is with the flashlight. Like, what are you doing? How did you know that we were here? And he'd make us come back home. And it wasn't just true of us boys. It was really true of the whole neighborhood. Everybody knew it. And so everybody had a little bit of fear. And yet, because we were kind of a rebellious group, our house was often the target of some mild vandalism. Toilet papering was the main thing that our house would become a target of. You know, it's kind of hard to explain toilet papering to this generation going through the great toilet paper crisis of 2020 when stores are literally out of it and, you know, they're kind of regulating how much you're allowed to buy. It's hard to explain that back in the 80s and 90s, we had so much toilet paper, we just literally threw it at people's homes. Just threw it. We'd throw it up in a tree. Maybe the roll would get stuck. That was a risk we were willing to take. You know, no regulations. Five teenagers show up buying 100 rolls of toilet paper, and we didn't even have to lie. You didn't have to say what you were doing. Just, yeah, I'm buying 100 rolls of toilet paper. And you would go, and you would do this. So our house was often a target of such activities. But sometimes we would get tipped off. And one such night, we were tipped off. Hey, your house is getting hit tonight. And my dad, being the person who he is, he slept in the living room floor with the window open that went to the front yard. And he's going to sleep there all night just waiting until he hears something outside. These guys show up and they knew the story. And so they were being so quiet. I mean, full-blown Navy SEAL, like communication with each other. They're not saying a word, quietly toilet papering the house. And then I don't know what it was, a branch that broke. Uh, maybe somebody tried to hold in a sneeze. I don't know what exactly was the final straw. My dad hears him. He comes bursting out of the front door. He's a big guy. He was scary to most people. He comes flying out and screaming and yelling. They take off running for their dear life. At the end of the street, there's a van with the engine running, the doors all open. All the guys had to do was jump into the van. They fishtail down the street, tires screeching, the whole nine yards, and the guy driving the van is laughing hysterically like, oh man, we did it. Did you see him? Did you see old man class? Oh, he was so angry at all, we got him. But he noticed he was kind of the only one celebrating and he's looking in the rear view mirror trying to figure out what happened and it's all quiet back there. And eventually someone speaks up from the back and says, uh, 
Mr. Class is in the van with us. <laughs> My dad jumped into the van with all of these other guys and, you know, made them turn it around and, hey, come back home. You're going to make things right, you know. But as a kid, I don't know how much I really appreciated my dad chasing people down. I certainly appreciated him chasing other people down. That was fine. I didn't really appreciate it so much when it happened to me. But of course, now as an adult, as a Christian man, looking back at that, I think to myself, he loved us that much, that he was willing to pursue us. He was willing to chase us. Even when we were being foolish, even when we were being rebellious, he hunted us down not because he hated us, but because he loved us and he would find us and he'd say, hey, get back home. And I'm so thankful that that is the way our heavenly father loves us. I don't know where you're at tonight. Maybe you're running from the Lord. Maybe you know it and, and he's been pursuing after you and maybe he's chasing you down and is saying, come back home. That's where the prophet Jonah was at. But we know as he's running from the Lord and he's rebelling against God's plan, he doesn't want anything to do with it. On a number of occasions in the book of Jonah, you can see where he comes to a place of complete hopelessness. Lord, just take my life. You might as well just take me now because I don't see how this could possibly work out. And the truth of the matter is there's a reason that we gravitate to these stories there's a reason that we gravitate to someone like David and the Psalms and how honest he is and how he would express some of his true feelings and emotions and frustrations and God, where are you? Are you gonna ignore me forever? How long am I gonna cry out to you, God, night and day and you will not answer? There's a reason that we gravitate to some of those stories and lessons because it's something that we can relate to all too well, all of us to one degree or another. We've struggled with these things. And the Apostle Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant of some of the suffering that we've been through. I don't want you to be ignorant of some of the trials that we faced and how overwhelming all of it was. That word ignorant, it has the idea of being willingly ignorant. Not that there's something that you can't figure out, but you choose not to figure out. There's many things I just flat out don't know. It's not that I choose to not know them, I just don't know them. Math, for instance, is one of those things. Uh, they say no child left behind, but math left me behind somewhere around the fifth grade, uh, which is really too bad because up until that point, I was tracking so well. Uh, addition, subtraction, oh man, this makes total sense to me. Multiplication, I don't know that I really understood it, but I could memorize the answers. I think somewhere around fractions, that was math's way of knowing, hey, we're ending this relationship pretty soon. It's about time for the two of us. We're going to part ways. And then algebra, geometry, calculus. Okay, okay. I can't figure these things out. This is something I just don't know. There's other things that I'm willingly ignorant of. I could learn about them. I choose not to. Good kale recipes, for instance. I am willing, willing ignorant. I, I choose not to know about a good kale recipe. What's the longest hike in San Diego County? I choose not to know that. Now, it might come as a shock to you because I'm in such great shape, but I actually don't like hiking. Uh, I don't really get the fascination with it. It seems like punishment to me. Oftentimes, you come walking up to some glorious mountain or canyon, and the view is incredible. Why do you got to ruin it by taking the next five hours and seeing every square inch of it? It looks the same. The view is the same no matter where you're standing from. 
Daniel is one of those people in my life. He's always trying to get me to go on hikes and he always, you know, thinks it's great. Back when he was living in Denver, I went out to visit him and flew out on a Wednesday night from San Diego to Denver. And then Thursday morning at like 3 a.m. he wakes me up. He wants to take me on a 14,000 foot mountain from sea level to 14,000 feet overnight. We're going up this mountain and I am slowly dying, literally. I, everyone else around me seemed to know that. Daniel was skipping up the mountain, having the time of his life. I'm like getting tunnel vision. I'm getting, th things are going dark. My life is flashing before my eyes. Wasn't that great as it turns out. I'm just like, what is happening right now? struggling with this hike that started at 12,000 feet. That's where the hike begins. And thinking to myself, this was a bad idea. Why am I here? We had to leave really early, Daniel said, because extreme weather was rolling in. Why are we going on a 14,000 foot mountain with extreme weather then? But we get there, it's like 4 a.m. It's pitch black, you can't see a thing. Daniel says, isn't it beautiful? I'm just like, Daniel, I have to take your word for it. And so there's some things I just, I'm willingly ignorant. That I don't wanna know, I could know about it, I choose not to. Paul says, I don't want you to be willingly ignorant of the suffering that I've been through the trials that I've been through, the pain that I've endured. Because if you understand that we all deal with these things to one degree or another, it's really a matter of time before we go through some dark tragedy, something painful, something hard to deal with. But as we realize that this is something that does take place, but God is good. God is faithful. The Apostle Paul says, if God can do this in my life, if he can deliver me, he can deliver you as well. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the trouble that came to us in Asia. There's some debate as to exactly what he's talking about because, quite frankly, he dealt with a lot of trouble. As a matter of fact, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he gives a rather detailed list of some of the things he went through. He said, five times he received 40 stripes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and the day in the deep, journeys often, perils in water, perils with robbers, perils with his own countrymen, perils with Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils at sea, perils with false brethren, weariness, toil, sleeplessness often, hunger, thirst, fastings often, and cold and nakedness. And then he gets to the very end of that list and he says, not to mention this deep concern, this deep burden that he has for the church. And so with everything that he endured physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of the attack that came into his life, he also has this deep burden weighing heavy on him as he thinks about the church, perhaps specifically the churches that he planted. These are people that he knew and cared about. And he says so much so that he was burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. He says we were burdened beyond measure. That word burden means to be pressed down into a mold. It means to be crushed. He says we were crushed beyond measure so that we despaired even of life. That word despaired, it means to be in an utter loss, destitute to renounce all hope. That's what the word itself means so that we had this sentence of death in ourselves. I think it's safe to say that the Apostle Paul, he's coming to a place where he was extremely overwhelmed at times in his life and his ministry. He said it was like a burden beyond measure. 
Now, even with that extreme language, I do think it's probably a leap, a jump to say that the Apostle Paul was suicidal. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think he had actually thought out about how he would take his own life. I think really all he's saying is in the ministry, it can be very difficult. It can be very hard. And he counted the cost of what it meant to be a disciple, what it meant to be an apostle, and that he was willing to lay down his life serving Jesus Christ, which of course, something that he did ultimately do. And so I think that's what's being communicated. However, when we talk about being burdened beyond measure, crushed beyond measure, when we talk about despairing even of life, I do think you have to bring up the subject of suicide. Because I found for a lot of people, they'll be speeding towards a brick wall, denying it the whole time. And they're just going faster and faster and faster, and they're not making any changes, but they're denying that there's a real problem, and they'll deny it all the way up until the collision, all the way up until the crash. And so I think we have to at least bring up the subject. Did you know that suicide was one of the leading causes of death in the United States? I think overall it's somewhere around 10th, but those numbers go down by age group. From the ages of 10 to 34, suicide is the second leading cause of death from 10 to 34 years old. It goes up a little bit from 35 to 44. It's the fourth leading cause of death. Worldwide, somebody commits suicide every 40 seconds. Comes to a place of total hopelessness comes to a place of total despair. And of course, we only see those numbers increasing in 2020 and 2021 and everything that we've been going through. Now, I will say, I don't really know where we came up with this idea that suicide is the unforgivable sin. I know that's crept into certain church circles, and I guess to a certain degree, I understand they would want to discourage somebody from doing it. But I don't see that in the Bible. I don't see it as the unforgivable sin. There's only one unforgivable sin. And that's to reject Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's the one thing that can't be forgiven. After that, God knows somebody's heart. It's God's place to judge. It's certainly not ours. I don't think it's the unforgivable sin, but I do think it's horrible. I do think it's tragic. I do think it's incredibly painful for everybody involved. I do think that more often than not, the enemy is either directly or indirectly involved in that process. He's referred to in scripture as a murderer from the beginning. He's the liar and the father of lies. He's come to rob, kill, and destroy. And he can bring somebody to that place. And it's sort of a combination of what's going on in their heart, what's going on in their mind, what's going on in their life. Maybe their sin, maybe their shame, maybe their circumstances. And the enemy can come and spin such an elaborate web. I have a vivid picture in my mind of being 19 years old sitting in my dark bedroom with a loaded gun and a note that I wrote to my family, contemplating what I was going to do next. And I suppose the reality is it's only God, the devil, and myself who knows how close I was to going through with something like that. And really, I look back on it and all I can say, the extreme abundant grace of God that got me out of that situation. But I remember sitting there and I I know the lies that he spins. I, I know the deception. I know the power of it. I know the darkness of it. And listen, I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised with two loving parents, but I had been indulging in a lifestyle of drugs and alcohol and rebellion. And you can only run with the devil so long before he wants to sit down and talk to you. And I know his voice. I know his lies. 
I know how he took my sin and my shame and my circumstances, some that were within my control, some that were beyond my control. I know how he can spin that all together and come up with this demonic cocktail that leads to hopelessness. And I know that it's powerful, but I also know that Jesus has come to give life and to give it more abundantly. I also know that there's power in the cross. There's power in the blood of Jesus. There's authority in his name to change someone's life forever. And I know that the devil shivers at the thought of someone calling upon the name of Jesus. I think of Peter and John on their way to the temple, the hour of prayer. There was the man at the gate called Beautiful. He's begging for money. We find out later in the story, he's over four years old, his whole life he's been in the same condition, unable to walk, and he's there begging for money. Peter and John are walking in. He looks over at Peter, thinking Peter is going to give him some money, and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. You think about that. If there was no power or authority in the name of Jesus, you think about Peter and the audacity to say that to somebody who their whole life they've been struggling with this. For 40 years, every day, they've been disappointed. Every day they've been overwhelmed. And here he comes along and says, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. But you know what? I think God still does that today. Not only does he do that with physical miracles, I think he does it spiritually. I think he does it emotionally because there's power and authority in his name that in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And miracles can happen and God's spirit can be poured out in a very powerful way because there's just that much authority in his name. That's what's been accomplished for us. That's the power of the gospel to change someone's life forever. You know, sometimes the world acts like they just have it all figured out. They have all the answers. And the church, oh, you guys, you really don't have any ammunition. You you can't really change anyone's life. The Apostle Paul said, you know what, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all to believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And so there's power in the name of Jesus, but I do think we have to acknowledge that some burdens are simply too heavy for us to carry. There are some burdens that if we don't give them over to the Lord, they will crush us. There are some things the world can throw throw at us that if we take it on ourselves, if we take it on our own shoulders, it'll just simply be too much. I think of Elijah when he was struggling when he was saying, Lord, would you take my life? And an angel comes and ministers to Elijah and an angel says to him, the journey is too great for you, Elijah. And I think there's a word there for us as well. We have to come to that place. Like the apostle Paul says, they have the sentence of death in themselves, but he says that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That was the place where he needed to come to an end of himself. It's not up to me. It's not up to you. We have to come to the place where we'd say, Lord, I'm going to cast this burden upon you because I know and I believe that you care for me. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30? He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lonely of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that wonderful? 
that Jesus, who is the exact representation of God the Father, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus says, come to me with all of that. I know your sin, I know your struggles, I know your pain. And instead of casting you out, he says, no, come to me. You notice, though, we're not totally passive in that, are we? It's not something that happens automatically. We have to say, yes, Jesus, yes, Holy Spirit, yes, God, would you give me the power and strength that I need? And then we're yoked together. We're walking together with him in obedience But he says, give those things over to me. But the problem is, whenever there is an invitation that's given to us by the Lord, whenever Jesus is bidding us to come, there's always an internal struggle, isn't there? There's always a wrestling match that can begin to take place where we start wrestling through, I don't know, am I going to respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit in my life? Is this something I'm really going to surrender to? Because we've already mentioned how the devil can come in and whisper his lies into our ears. But isn't it also true? Sometimes we don't need his help. It's our own heart. It's our own mind. It's our own thoughts. It's our own feelings that sometimes make the decisions for us. And actually, many studies have been done to prove that that people oftentimes will make major decisions, not based off of facts, but based off of feelings the way they feel in the moment. Can I just say what a dangerous thing that is? The Bible says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the way you feel one moment can be different the way you feel the next. I don't know about you. My feelings have straight lied to my face. Lie to my face. My feelings lie to me all the time. If you were dating your feelings, If you were dating someone who lied to you as much as your feelings do, could you imagine being comfortable taking that to the next relationship step? Like, hey, feelings, I know you lie all the time, sometimes for no reason. I don't even really get it, but I want to get serious in this relationship with you. It'd be crazy. And it's hard because on one hand, we understand not all feelings are bad. Not all emotions are bad. I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for extreme joy and happiness. I'm even thankful for some of the sorrow and pain because it helps us respond in the way that we should. But how dangerous it is when we put them in the driver's seat. No, we have to do what David did, just the exact opposite. Instead of our body, instead of our minds, instead of our feelings telling us what to do, we have to to talk to ourselves. David said in Psalm 42, verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. David talks to himself and is like, soul, what's your deal? Why are you so cast down? Does God not love you? Does God God not care about you? Did Jesus not say that he would never leave you or forsake you? Why are you cast down? And he speaks to himself. And rather than letting his feelings or his emotions or his own thoughts be in control, he brings his body under subjection like the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. And so we have to trust in the Lord. He says in verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Past, present, and future. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there is something powerful about looking back and remembering. Remembering those times where God has shown himself strong in your life. Remembering those times where he's been faithful. Not only remembering Jesus and the cross and what it took to save you from your sins, but the pit that he pulled you out of. Because we have a tendency of forgetting, don't we? 
Sometimes we have selective memory. And so it's important to remember, no, Jesus, you've saved me, you've washed me, you've cleansed me. Of course, communion is a perfect opportunity for that. It's as we're celebrating communion and we're looking at those elements and we remember Jesus and the cross, but we also remember the bondage that we were in. And as we're reminded of God's faithfulness in the past, we'll see it in the present, we'll expect it in the future, and he can be glorified in our lives. Of course, now as we're going to be entering into an extended time of worship, just a couple of closing thoughts here as we're wrapping up our time in the Word. A few things to consider. Number one, don't underestimate the enemy. Don't underestimate the enemy. Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Paul says in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, we're not ignorant of his devices. We know his strategy. We know his plan. We know as much as God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life, the devil hates us and wants to destroy us. And I do think it's true. On one hand, you can give him too much credit, too much attention, even shift blame onto him, and that's a mistake. But it's equally a mistake to just completely underestimate him. The Bible says, no, we need to put on the whole armor of God. We need to understand we're stepping out into a battlefield and we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. We need to be filled with the spirit. We need the sword, the word of God in our hands. We need to be ready for the battle. Don't underestimate the enemy. Secondly, don't underestimate your problems. Don't look at them and say, well, no, I can handle it myself. At some point, the world is capable of throwing some things at you that will just simply be too great for you to carry. Another way of saying don't underestimate your problems is to say don't overestimate yourself because we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength, but without him, we're nothing. And if we're not giving those things over to him, those problems can crush us, so don't underestimate your problems. But perhaps most importantly, don't underestimate God. Don't underestimate his power. Don't underestimate the Holy Spirit who can change and transform and forgive and restore and give you the power, give you the strength that you never thought you could have on your own. You know, I'm so thankful for doctors. I'm thankful for medicine. I'm thankful for advancement in technology. I'm especially thankful for Christian doctors and counselors who kind of bring the word of God and modern science together. So thankful for them. And please, I would hope that there would be no judgment. There's no condemnation coming out of this message. If, if you found some hope, if you found some help in some of the things that the world has to offer, I'm not judging you. That's wonderful. That's great. Praise the Lord for those things. I do think it's unfortunate that you always have to say, you know what, make sure you've done your homework, make sure you're led of the Lord, because as much as it's true that there are some wonderful doctors who can provide a lot of help to people, isn't it sad that you can't just give that blanket statement and say they're all good and, and say you don't have to really worry or have any reservations? Because we look around at some of the problems that we're facing as in the world and as a country, as a people, and we realize that sometimes they don't always have our best interest in mind. And so we have to be so careful as we navigate that world. But what I am saying more than anything else is let's make sure we're right with God first. Let's make sure we're exhausting the pages of Scripture first, that we're combing through it, like for buried treasure, that there's silver and gold in here. 
and that we're combing through the pages of Scripture and we're relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, one thing that I hear quite often as a pastor, someone's life is kind of falling apart and they're struggling, and they'll say something like, okay, I'm looking for answers, I'm looking for help, and don't just tell me, read my Bible and pray, because I already know that. I always want to stop and look at them like, well, that's good that you know that, but are you doing that? Are you living that? When's the last time you really cried out to God? When's the last time you searched through the scriptures like buried treasure? Do you understand that it's food for your soul? Do you understand it's a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path? Do you understand that it's alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and marrow? It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Do we cry out for wisdom? Do we cry out for his word? Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke concerning the spirit. And so we have the word of God that's living and powerful. We have the Holy Spirit that's like rivers of living water. Are we calling out for him? Are we calling out to Jesus, the wonderful counselor, who says, cast it all on me, lay it all at my feet, lay it all at the cross. Do we know him as our savior? Has he forgiven you of your sin? Have you said, yes, Jesus, I need you in my life? That's where it begins. There's no other help, there's no other hope, there's no other life. It begins by saying, yes, Jesus, I believe you died for me. You died in my place and you rose from the dead. Would you come into my life? Would you forgive me of my sins? I want to follow you. That's where it begins. Do you know him as your savior? Do you know him as your Lord? Are you walking with him? Are you engaged in the work that he has for you? Or like Jonah, have you been running from the Lord? Is it time to come home? Is it time to get right? Is it time to say, you know what, God? I have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, and so I want to follow you. I want to serve you. I want to be part of your plan and your purpose for my life because when we come to Jesus and we lay it all down at his feet, he can do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we could ask or think or even imagine. Amen? Amen. Let's come before the Lord together and we'll just continue to worship him as we enter into a time of worship and communion. Heavenly Father, we do come before you. We thank you so much for this night. We thank you for who you are, your love and your mercy, your grace. We thank you for your presence here in this place. Lord, I thank you for each and every person who's gathered here tonight, those who are watching You know where they're at, Lord. You know their heart. You know their pain. You know their struggles. Lord, you know that if there's anyone here that's been running from you, anyone here you've been tugging on their heart, saying to come home, saying to get right with you, you know if there's anyone here tonight just overwhelmed by some burden that's just simply too much for them to carry, God, I pray that you'd meet with them in a very special way. Lord, I pray that as we sing these songs and sit at your feet, that we would be able to respond in the way that you would have us, that you would move among us, 
that there would be those who would cry out to you in faith, Jesus, and be forgiven, that there would be those who would cry out in faith and be healed, be restored, be renewed, refreshed in your presence. You're so good. You're worthy, 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 worthy is the Lord God Almighty. We love you, Lord. You're holy. We just commit this time into your hands and we pray that you would just continue to move powerfully among us and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.